I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the movie, movie lovers. lovers. Welcome. Hello. To the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In each episode, we kick off our joy of film with the week in review, what movies and TV shows we've been watching since the last episode, move on to the main event, which is a main topic of discussion, our main review, and then finish up with film faves, our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. In this episode, the main event will be a review of the much-talked-about, much-covered The Batman, and... Our film faves will be, I can't believe we haven't done this before, our 12 favorite directorial debuts. So, let's get right into it with the week in review, Shanna. You have caught up with a TV series, correct? That's right. I finally caught up with Killing Eve Season 3 on Hulu. It looks like they have their fourth season coming pretty soon here. And I was really confused and I found out why. I kept starting the same episode over and over again thinking I could multitask. But then uh, subtitles were coming on and I figured, well, I probably can't multitask. So I kept pulling it off. But I kept seeing the first bit of the first episode. And so I thought I just watched the whole of season three. But pleasantly surprised to find out. A few days ago, I had not. And so I went ahead and enjoyed that show. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the stars, the person that I love raving about just as much as I rave about Zoe Lister-Jones, Jodie Comer, who plays Villanelle, and Sandra Oh, who plays Eve Palastri. They are women that seem to not be able to get rid of each other. Jodie Comer is an assassin, and Sandra Oh is a security operative. You know, three seasons in, I'm still not really, maybe I just don't get it. I'm still not sure what to what to call it, but it's very odd and it's intriguing and I don't want to stop looking at them. So I look forward to season four coming. I obviously cannot say anything about season three because we're three seasons into a very spoiler heavy show. I can only say that if you, you know, if you like the BBC, if you like Jodie Comer, if you like Sandra Oh or Fiona Shaw, then you need, you need to go check out this this show. And Jodie Comer is just so brilliant because she's based in Europe and she has to speak, I don't know, a million languages and be able to seem like she fits in whichever town or city she's in at the time. So it's wonderful performances by Jodie Comer, Sandra Oh. Go check it out. Do you think that season three is the best season or how do you think the series is uh, going and holding up i think we're doing okay i nothing beats season one i just i Mm. love season one so much season two was very interesting and season three it feels like they're trying to get to the point and uh we'll see what happens with season four all right and where did you find that again to stream that's Killing Eve, season three on Hulu. Excellent. And you haven't watched anything else for your week in review. I don't think I've really watched anything since our last episode was recorded. Well, I think you're forgetting one thing you got to do with our son this past week. You got to go to a movie. Yeah. Away from the house. Yeah. 
In the last episode, we mentioned how we were going to make a main review of Uncharted. And that didn't work out. But I, I did end up going to see Uncharted, take the boy, to see the film. He was looking forward to it. We were not as much, and I don't remember, Shanna, are you a fan of the game? Are you? Did you play the game? Uncharted? I, you know, my brother was a little controlling with the PlayStation controllers, so, uh. you know, when we had Sega, I was controlling, and then when PlayStation came, he kind of, like, squirreled it away, uh-huh. so sometimes he would invite me in to see cool things that was happening in Uncharted, uh-huh. so I'm aware of it for sure. But you never played it, and you're not a fan. No, I've never played it. Okay. I have played the first two games, and completed the first two games, and played a little bit of the third game, so I did. I am a fan. I did love it, and I was still reluctant about this movie that's been long in development, Back 10, 12 years ago, it was actually going to be directed by David O. Russell, the director of Silver Linings Playbook and Three Kings, with Mark Wahlberg as Nate Drake. For those who aren't familiar, Uncharted is a video game series that is about Nate Drake, who goes on adventures around the world with his, I don't want to necessarily say pal, but I definitely don't want to say sidekick, but he's a guy who helps him out named Sully. Now, in this film, it stars Tom Holland, ye of Spider-Man fame, and Mark Wahlberg has been relegated to the Sully role. Here's what I think about Uncharted. As an action movie, action-adventure movie, it's fine. It's not operating on a very high level here. In the trailer, you see helicopters that are carrying giant old ships, right? Sailing ships, almost like pirate ships, but, you know, the kind of ships that explorers used. And before that, a character says, don't do anything to damage these ships because they're thousands of uh, years or, you know, hundreds of years old, so they could be worth untold millions alone but we're gonna carry them in a helicopter not to mention what's inside the helicopter the helicopters what's inside the ships is uh, gold basically and then like a few minutes later rather than setting the ship down and chasing after our heroes who who is um actually got one of those ships also uh she decides no we're going to fuck what I said, and we're going to chase after them. Ships be damned, and everything inside them. So it's the kind of movie that sometimes is dumb yeah. <laughs> as an action movie, but it isn't always. It actually has some fun stuff in it and whatnot. But as a Uncharted movie, mm-hmm. no bueno. I think, first of all, the casting is pretty bad. In terms of Nate Drake and Sully, these are. This is not the Nate Drake I know. This is not the Sully I know. Mm-hmm. And people might be like, "Yeah, but it takes place before, and then he becomes a dude." We're talking about five to ten year difference between when we first meet Nate Drake in the games uh, to how he is now. And there is no way squeaky voice Tom Holland becomes <laughs> the Nolan North. <laughs> uh Nate Grounded Drake that voice. we know, right? Yeah. And and Mark Wahlberg, his voice is just too soft. He doesn't have 
the the grain and the I don't know the grit or whatever mm, that grit. I come to expect from the characters solely. You know, this is a guy who he kind of gives no fucks. And he's kind of lived and seen things, and he always keeps an emotional distance about things. And Mark Wahlberg, man, actually, that guy has had a really bad history with action movies. I mean, this is the guy who is Max Payne, and, <laughs> you know, okay. he's, he's, he's done a slew of really not good action movies. The only good one that he did was actually a, a riff on the buddy cop action movie, which was called The Other Guys. Right, so now in terms of a straightforward action uh, hero, Mark Wahlberg, no bueno, and uh, so that's part of the problem, and it does have some stupid elements of it, and it doesn't follow the formula of the Uncharted games either, where like it it's an adventure, and then oh my god, things get weird. So as an adaptation of the games, it's mm-hmm. not great. As well, an action film on its own, it's fine. Well, I was gonna say being someone who's played the games and I I would walk in every now and again and I was pretty pleased with what I was seeing with their little video clips. Yeah. So you've gone through that. You've waited years for this project to be executed. What were you expecting? Were you expecting something to be different? What what, what did you need from this as a player? That is an excellent question because the thing about Uncharted is the idea was... You, particularly because of the technology and everything, its ability to storytell the way it does, the idea was, hey, you know those Indiana Jones and adventure-type movies? What if you were actually playing them? And so it was intended to be, in itself, very cinematic. Mm. So really the idea of of adapting, uh, doing a little translation of those games is kind of missing the point of those games. So I wouldn't want that. I did not want them to adapt Drake's Fortune or Among Thieves or anything like that in the literal sense. I think the way to do it is, like this movie kind of does, is to create an original story. At best, maybe live in in, in the canonical world of the video games. Like it's just in another adventure Mm-hmm. But to still follow like the blueprint of what uh, makes an Uncharted game, yeah, and of and, and most especially get your casting right, so it actually feels like the characters. So that that's kind of what I I think is the best way to do this, and I don't think they did that at all. So uh, those are my thoughts on Uncharted. You, it's definitely one that you could wait till streaming on, honestly. I'll definitely check it out when it's streaming. It's not. I know it's something that's massive and has large scale and probably would be better on a movie screen, but I didn't connect with the trailer. So that's why I'll wait. So now it's time for our Week in Review. We have caught up... Well, we want to update you on a couple shows that we've been watching for the past year or so we have i think it's been a year we've been watching the arrowverse and so recently we finished season five of the arrowverse that includes season five of arrow season four of the flash and season i think was it season 
three of Supergirl? I think so. And Legends of Tomorrow. Shanna, what are your thoughts on Arrowverse Season 5? Was there one uh, series that was stronger than another? Uh, What was the strongest? What was the weakest? You know, Arrow is kind of just, it's like school. You have to get through school, right? So you suck it up and you get through it. That's is what it? That's what Arrow is like for me. It has a few good moments mm. that are few and far between. Mm. And, and that's that's just how I deal with Arrow. It's usually the one I have to suck up and get over. I adore Flash. I think it's always fun, even when it's depressing. It always tries to put a positive spin on things. I love the characters. I love how they mesh and come into conflict with each other. And I have come to really, really love Supergirl. What's interesting about Supergirl is it's aliens that are living on planet Earth, and some are doing good things and some aren't. And it is an opportunity to talk about refugee crisis. Hmm. So to be specific... Arrow this season is the one that deals with Prometheus, who is trying to take down Arrow and seems to know something about Arrow. Yes, but then we also have the flashbacks with the Russians, the Bratva. Right, and then they have the Bratva. Yes, so, correct. Yes. You know, we still have flashbacks. Yay. And this season of the Flash that we're talking about, which is season, did I say season three, actually? Of the Flash is the one that is dealing with, oh, what's I'm trying to find the name of the main villain. The Speed God. Uh, yeah, 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 Savitar, Savitar, yeah. right. So none of that ended up kind of getting long in the tooth for you. I will say that there was one episode where I got really annoyed and I thought, stuff this. I'm gonna go look on the internet and see if I'm right about this thing. And I went and did that, and I was right. So I was like, and now I can release a little bit of anxiety. You spoiled it for yourself. Well, you know, sometimes you need to do that, and it's very... Do I? <laughs> I need to do it. <laughs> I need to do it. Uh, well, if Flash was season three, I believe Supergirl's probably season two then. Uh, let me double-check that, but go ahead and, and speak more. To, th- this is... The season of Flash had major changes with Caitlin Snow's character, and it introduced other villains... We had, I believe also in, is it this season of Arrow, we had Ragman? Is that season five also? I believe so, yeah. The problem with these shows in particular is that they sometimes, they're happening over such a long period of time that I forget where we are. Mm. And, you know, we take breaks in between seasons, so that's nice. Well, yeah, we try not to ex- elongate the viewing of the this whole thing too much. But season two, I think, is what we just finished of, of Supergirl. That is the one that introduced Maggie Sawyer. You had appearances from Linda Carter in it. And we have the whole Mon-El thing from Daxum being introduced. And Lena Luthor, I don't know if she was in season... One, I think she got introduced in season two. That's right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I actually love Lena Luthor. I was pleasantly surprised that we're not doing a female Lex Luthor here, and she seems to be legitimately, continuously 
justified as or, or established as an actual good person. And I really love her. And it's uh, who is it? Katie McGrath, I believe, plays Lena Luther. I love her relationship with Supergirl, with Kara. I don't think she knows that she's Supergirl at any point. Where we are, yeah, this hasn't happened yet. And I love the relationship with Maggie and Kara's sister that occurs during this season. But I do think that, like, the whole Terry Hatcher of it all, unfortunately, that story, no, nothing against Terry Hatcher. But that story kind of got a little drug out in the second half of the season. I wasn't too big a fan of that. But then what about Legends? Did you have any thoughts about that show in the in this season? I think it was a season. Was it season two of Legends? Yeah, I think this season was better than season one. And we started season three and I'm liking season three even more. So season two is kind of a in between for me. Oh, the whole idea of the season two of of the Legends is you get the villains from the other shows joining together to create the Legion of Doom. Yeah, that was quite enjoyable. I have to admit, yes, because I think chiefly because you have, what's his name, is Damien Dark in there, who I actually think is one of the best villains in the Arrowverse. His charisma... Neil McDonough, his charisma and his chewing of the scenery, his ability to play the scenes is like really is so much more enjoyable than, let's say, Merlin. Right. And I even more enjoyable than reverse flash. But seeing them all kind of bounce off of each other is is, uh, pretty great. Yes. Having that new way of interacting was really fun. And because it's Legends they have time on their side. So you can sometimes see characters that we don't see anymore, and that's always fun. Right, yeah. So overall positive on season five of Arrowverse? The verse, yes. Yeah. Yes, I I really (laughs) want to to be done with Arrow. (laughs) I'm okay (laughs) doing the other stuff, but Arrow needs to go. (laughs) Oh, shame. I actually liked season five of Arrow itself. I do think that... I think Savitar in The Flash felt more lawn in the tooth than the whole, what was his name, in Arrow, uh, Prometheus thing in Arrow. But also, the Russian flashbacks were probably the weakest part. So I agree with you there. So we're working, we're starting to work through season six now. I think we've gotten through like six episodes in total of, of season six of Arrowverse. And we'll see how it goes. Supergirl has some new elements that's interesting. I'm really curious to see where that goes. The Flash, you know, we'll see what happens with this season of The Flash. I hear it's the worst season. Ooh, okay, goody. (laughs) Right. Um, We have had already an appearance by Danny Trejo so far in that show. That was kind of cool. I've concluded Legends is just the silliest of them. Yeah, and they seem to be riding that wave a little better this season so far. I guess. Yeah, you either are with its silliness or you're not. Yeah. And Arrow is just kind of getting started with everything that happened at the end of season five and dealing with that. I guess the end of Arrow was good. 
I liked the the last two or three episodes. Yeah, you were way more cynical about it than me. I was like, oh my god, they killed everybody. <laughs> You're like, uh, uh-uh. no, 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 that's not how Arrowverse works. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> All right, shall we move on to? Yes, Peacemaker. More DC. <laughs> more DC. Much more. Uh, tighter <laughs> yeah much briefer much in a way much more fun right so we caught up with the spinoff peacemaker a spinoff of the suicide squad it was a covid pandemic project by james gunn who of course created or conceived of the suicide squad and directed that this stars of course john Cena as the peacemaker but also, Danielle Brooks, Freddie Stroma, Chukawudi Iwuji, Jennifer Holland, and Steve Aji. Oh, as well as appearances by people like Robert Patrick and Annie Chun. So essentially, this is like Peacemaker being recruited to do a mission he's not told anything about. He just has to take out these butterflies, what are called butterflies. And he knows that a politician is somehow involved in all this. So it kind of gets spoilery after the first couple episodes from there. But it's a very hyper-violent, bonkers, hilarious and also kind of thrilling six episode series i, th- I want to say yes I eight episodes my mistake eight episode series what did you think of the peacemaker you know i was sick when we watched this and it was really a lovely feel-good show um a little tense at times it's james gunn so it had the same humor that the suicide squad had which I appreciated. I want to be able to laugh. DC is so well known for being the dark side of superheroes and antiheroes, etc. Well, in more recent history, for sure. Yeah, which I'm I'm fine with, but I like when we can laugh about what's happening as well. I was sick when we watched this show, and I have to tell you, this was a really good upper for me. It made me feel at least emotionally better about being home trapped in a cabin kind of situation so it was definitely somehow dc who's usually known for being dark uh retained obviously because of james gunn retained that humor that that we saw in the suicide squad and it was great there is a lot that's coming over from suicide squad uh because it's a team that we've already seen and now we get to learn more about that team so it also feels like a very intimate show because as you said it was made during covid time and you can tell that there's just so much love and trust in it i i that's kind of the sense that I get. I love the casting choice. I love the characters that they decided to have. I love the opening title, the opening credits, where all the characters that you're going to see, uh, the main characters that you're going to see, are all doing a dance number to, mm. what is it, Nor- Norwegian rock? I, glam rock. Yeah, I don't I know which, I can't remember which country, but glam rock song, where the, the, the word choice is just so odd and it Mm. continues throughout the show because as it turns out peacemaker is really into glam rock and i didn't even know that that was a thing but it apparently is and you didn't know that glam rock was a thing okay when you said it sounds like def leopard i was like oh 
that must be glam rock. Well, it's, it, I mean, Def Leppard was an 80s hair metal band, which is slightly different. Um, okay. And We're going to get technical, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know anything about this band that apparently they pulled music from for this show, but it sounds very much in that vein. Absolutely. Yeah. And performances, story, everything was very tight. Everything kind of had a really big bow on it. And the end had room for season a season two, which mm. I will totally welcome as long as they do the same kind of opening title sequence. <laughs> mm. Yeah. So I think this version of Adrian Chase, the vigilante that we get compared to the Arrowverse is is really funny and hilarious. I love him. I love him a little bit more during the the episodes where he has his mask on than the episodes when he doesn't, just because the pantomiming and the voice work by Freddie Stroma is fantastic. And he's a he's a great like pseudo buddy for uh John mm. Cena's peacemaker. Their relationship is so sweet even though He's a psychopath. Yeah. Vigilante is a psychopath. Yeah, he's a definite, like, he literally says he cannot relate to emotions, so he's he's very much a sociopath. Uh, but it's great. Robert Patrick appears in a, in a character that's very familiar to some fans of Robert Patrick's in the past, but pretty great stuff. Pretty great stuff. Peacemaker was a pleasant surprise. Between the recent shows of... Book of Boba Fett and the Peacemaker, I really, mm. like Peacemaker was a breath of fresh air. Absolutely. It, it is really nice to watch. Highly recommend that one, Peacemaker on HBO. Excellent. And finally for the week in review, we have a movie that we caught up with from last year. It opened around Christmas time. I think it opened against mm. Spider-Man Far No Way Home, I should say. And that was a mistake. <laughs> no one should open when a Marvel superhero movie is opening. Just yeah. don't do it. I mean, there's something to be said about counter-programming because not everyone's into that, but this is counter the kind of counter-programming on <laughs> that's kind of bonkers because it is the holiday season, and I don't know how many people want to go see a Guillermo del Toro crime <laughs> film during the holiday season. It is Nightmare Alley, which, as I mentioned, is del Toro's latest film, of course, Many people know him for The Shape of Water, which was which won Best Picture a couple years back. Nightmare Alley is also nominated for a Best Picture. It is a two-and-a-half-hour film, a remake of a 1940s Tyrone Power film. It is about an ambitious carny with a talent for manipulating people with a few well-chosen words. Hooks up with a female psychiatrist who is even more dangerous than he is. It stars a huge cast. Bradley Cooper, Tony Collette, Kate Blanchett, Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins, Rooney Mara, Ron Perlman, Mary Steenburgen, David Strathairn, and Tim Blake Nelson makes an appearance as well as Clifton Collins Jr. Shanna, you were the one who was really looking forward to this. You're a bit more of a, a Del Toro fan than myself. What did you think of Nightmare Alley, and how does it measure up to his other films you've seen? Here's the thing. I am a huge fan of Pan's Labyrinth. I think that's his best film. I love it to pieces. And I was curious about this one because it was a crime film by... 
Del Toro. It, it definitely piqued my interest when a friend said, let's go watch it. And I was excited about it for a, a while. And when it got Best Picture nomination, I was like, well, there must be a reason. Mm. And I watched the film and I was horribly disappointed. And I cannot believe it's in the Best Picture uh, category. It just makes me so mad. I don't think that it's his best work at all. I, I, I'm not into this film. I'm not into its production, its set design. It's oh, really? uh, use of very strong vignetting i just felt like i i could not do it i was i was very disappointed in this film so your main issues with the film was the production design and and all that sort of uh, technical stuff well i can also say that i didn't like the story the casting was fine you know there wasn't really anything i can criticize about the casting but Mm. i just was horribly disappointed by the execution of this film Okay. So what did you think, Jeff? Did you like this film? Actually, that you were not excited about? <laughs> no. Actually, I found myself checking out of it. I had a really hard time. I think the I feel like there's two halves to the film. And I feel like the first half is slightly more interesting than the second half. But at the same time, I do feel like the film overall feels disjointed between the two halves. I think you do get, as a Del Toro fan, you do get those Del Toro touches. You get the particular color schemes, the particular lighting. In a way, this is a very beautiful film to, to look at. There is something very um, sumptuous about the, the cinematography and the production design. I don't have issues with that aspect of the film. I do think that a lot of it's sort of predictable, even though like it takes this left turn halfway through the film towards this uh, this con that that Bradley Cooper's character tries to do with Rooney Mara. I I do think a lot of the things about it are a little bit predictable. There's some things that are kind of pointed out that you <laughs> that are like a little obvious like oh that's totally going to come into play later and maybe they shouldn't have put those two things next to each other (laughs) so i i had a lot of issues with it i was really surprised by it being nominated and it's acclaim as well i was a little cool on the shape of water and i actually think the shape of water i i think shape of water is a good movie I didn't think by any stretch of the imagination it was the best movie of 2017, but I think it's a good movie, and I think it is a better movie than Nightmare Alley is. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of bummed that, like, of all the projects that Del Toro has juggled over the years and he and and, and has been denied, that this is the one that got approved and uh, greenlit, and he got to to make out of everything else. I would have been more interested in any of the other projects that he's tried getting off the ground over this. So I guess we're both somewhat disappointed by Nightmare Alley. Uh, Shanna, way more so than me. But you can check it out yourself on Hulu. And that finishes the week in review. And now it's time to move on to the main event and our review of The Batman. Fear. Is a tool. But when that light hits the sky, it's not just a call. It's a warning. 
And that is from the trailer to The Batman, our first actual review of the year. This film, the latest DC film, is directed by Matt Reeves, who some may be familiar with for directing Cloverfield and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. It stars... Robert Pattinson as Bruce Wayne, Zoe Kravitz as Selena Kyle, Jeffrey Wright as Jim Gordon, Colin Farrell, Paul Dano, John Turturro, Andy Serkis as Alfred, Peter Sarsgaard, and more. So, okay, we like to, when we review a film in the main event, what we like to do is start off with the good, focus on the good, what we liked about a movie, what were its strengths. Then we talk about the bad. What was a film's flaws? What made it suck? What sucked about a movie in general? And then we weigh whether or not the good outweighs the bad and talk spoilers and final thoughts. Get a little bit more in detail on things in in the film. So, Shanna, this is the third Batman we've had in 10 years. In 2012, we had Christian Bale's final entry as Batman in The Dark Knight Rises. And I think it was 2017's like Justice League era Snyder version of Batman with Ben Affleck. And now we have Robert Pattinson playing the Batman. So I'm curious, Shanna, did you have any level of excitement going into this movie, given that we've gone through so many in such a recent amount of time? And if not, did the Batman turn things around for you? And what was good about the movie? You know, I love Batman in general. I think he's very well done most of the time. Most of the time. There are times where, you know, he hasn't stuck the landing. So generally, I'm okay with Batman coming back around once a decade. But, you know, it has been a lot. You're right. It has been a lot in a short space of time. And so when I heard that Robert Pattinson was going to be Batman, I was like, oh, yeah, right. (laughs) Whatever. Mm. You know, even though, yeah, I always have this filter of, you know, you're from Twilight. Why would I like you? And I know he does other stuff as well. And mm-hmm. and that's great. But there's always that filter there. And I think it'll be there probably for another few years because that was really something that had an effect on everything. And you haven't watched enough of his indie films over the, the past seven years or so to to really wash that Twilight stink off for you. 
Not yet. I mean, it's it's more it's it's off of Kristen Stewart, so we're getting there with one of them, mm-hmm. and we'll see if we can get there. I'll see if I can get there with Robert Pattinson. Mm. So I was I was a little concerned, but then I saw the trailer and I thought, wow, that is that looks awesome. It looks very dark. It looks very moody. It, you know, the cinematography and the story both look dark, and I was curious. And I felt like this one stuck the landing. So what were its strengths? What was good about it that helped it stick the landing? So when I was in university, I loved drawing inspiration from comic books, uh, superheroes specifically, and Batman was one of them. And I couldn't draw, but I liked the stories. I liked how they they got their, their format done. And my poor drawing professor had to tolerate me getting excited about superheroes and Batman in particular and he shared something really interesting with me one day that superheroes come and go through different periods of time if the creators do it right the superhero will have something to say about the time that we're in right now and reflect back to us a warning something that might not be easy to digest or understand that's going on in the world but if we see it through a superhero we might if we're open to receiving it we might be able to digest what's going on in the world and do something kind of spring to action Mm -hmm. a little more readily Mm -hmm. and that's when you know they've done it right Mm. they've earned the right to bring him back okay If if they don't do that you know whatever and I feel like everything that was happening in this movie kind of honored that. There was definitely stuff that was happening that could be parallel to what we're going through even in the last five years, even right this very second. It's very interesting. The cinematography took me a little bit to get used to because it's all happening during night, which means it's all very dark. Mm. And it took me a while to get my eyes adjusted to what was going, you know, to what was happening. But once I got adjusted, they seemed to do it very well. And it looked like quite the picnic for cinematographers because they were working with very grungy set designs that didn't hold back. I mean, there was garbage everywhere. I don't know if like... The refuse center in Gotham has decided, fuck you. (laughs) Like, they're just not going to do anything. But it was a very dirty place. Even one of the villains' lairs had dirty windows. And you would think, well, you're a villain and you can afford to have it upkept. But no. There was so much that I loved about this film. I loved the casting choices. And so much more. The music was really wonderful by Michael Giacchino. It made sense that it was him. Ave Maria plays a strong purpose in this film and uh, Michael Giacchino was able to weave Batman music with Ave Maria in a way that no one else could. So that was just really wonderful and the performance by Robert Pattinson was great. He wasn't doing the I'm Batman changing the voice when you're really sick in the throat, you know. He just kind of kept it even keeled, and I thought that that was unique. I thought the costuming and choice of sound design in this film played to its strength. So shout out to the cinematographer. It is 
Greg Frazier, who actually has done work, uh, been the cinematographer on such films as Matt Reeves' Let Me In, Snow White and the Huntsman, Zero Dark Thirty, The uh, Foxcatcher, and Rogue One, a Star Wars story. He was also the DOP in Dune. As far as production design, which you also mentioned in passing, that was by James Chinlund, who also was the production designer in such films as Requiem for a Dream, way back in 2000, 25th Hour for Spike Lee, The Avengers in 2012, Matt Reeves' Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and War for the Planet of the Apes, and The Lion King remake. So, point of clarity there. I agree with you. Michael Giacchino's score is unforgettable. I was I woke up to that repeating Ooh. in my head. Actually, it, it and it rained through my head the rest of the night last night at the time of recording. We watched it on the Friday night of opening weekend. And that is a score that is repeated through the film. And it is just as great. And I dare say will be as iconic as the Danny Elfman version and Hans Zimmer's uh, Batman scores both. It's excellent. The cast, I agree with you. The cast is impeccable. Sometimes unrecognizable, sometimes surprising. I there's a couple of them that I unfortunately mentioned that I didn't even know were in the film. There's one that is all over the internet that I'm not going to mention appears in the film. Because mm-hmm. we respect you. <laughs> Yeah, so Robert Pattinson is a very different Bruce Wayne. This is, of course, the story takes place in the second year of Bruce Wayne wearing the the cape and cowl as Batman. Uh, He has established a relationship with Jim Gordon. Jeffrey Wright, I knew when he was cast as Jim Gordon, I knew he would be perfect, and he is an excellent Jim Gordon. I think Selena Kyle, Zoe Kravitz, she brings a new flavor to the Catwoman that is very similar to to a version of, in the comics in the around the 2000s, I believe. There is definitely some influence from an era of the comics. I can't remember if it was Ed Brubaker or who. Somebody wrote a more grounded run of Batman where it was like as though it was a crime comic and so some of the more outlandish characters were much more grounded you know the killer croc who is uh, often portrayed as essentially like a giant lizard he is more like a large man large in terms of muscular man with a skin disease and Selena Kyle is a woman with a very tight cat burglar suit, and she has a headpiece that happens to have little points on them, like cat ears. Very similar in this film. The penguin, also known as Oswald Cobblepot. Does not look like a penguin. (laughs) Right. In this film, he's also named Oz 
uh, for short for Oswald. He is also similar to this version of or this era of in the comics where the penguin was just a unattractive mob boss, let's say. And he's very similar to that in this film. Played by an unrecognizable Colin Farrell, who I think is absolutely fantastic. You can't even tell that it's Colin Farrell by his voice, because he, he has a very different voice about him, too. Uh, so he's fantastic. This is an, a Riddler that I've never experienced before. Mm. I don't think the Riddler has ever been portrayed this way in the comics. He sure as hell has never been like this in TV shows or film. And it is extraordinary. This film is like the Batman through the lens of David Fincher's seven. Yeah. A very good comparison. It is very gritty. It's very dark and at times unpleasant. It's just this side of an R rating It is rated PG 13. And I think like had it had a couple extra shots in it, it would have been rated R there are murders in it. The Riddler is a serial killer in this film. I know that in prep and trying to design the character, Paul Dano was influenced by the Zodiac Killer. And he talked a lot with Matt Reeves about the behaviors and the psychology of serial killers. So this is a very dark dude. And I think Paul Dano is perfectly cast for that. He is exceptional in, in this film. So, yes, the casting is great. The movie is, I would say, if you take out the credits, it's probably two hours, 45 minutes long. Mm. And it has a lot of crime story to get through, for sure. It's very dense. There isn't really a moment that's appropriate to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I dehydrated myself unintentionally before the movie, and I didn't go, didn't end up having to go, which was great. I didn't miss a single thing for a change, and I enjoyed that. But I guess it's just speaking to there's always something happening, and it's not boom, 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 boom. It's not a rush. It's not... It's not like Tenant, where they're kind of bombarding you with information all the time. No. It's a good balance. It's a good approach. It's very well executed. It's a very compelling film. Let's talk about the bad. What were the weaknesses we had that we noticed with the film? What sort of issues did we have with the film? What we see in the trailer is there is a car chase when it's raining mm -hmm. at night. Mm -hmm. I drive on the I-5 all the time and sometimes at night and i'm sure people have noticed that there's these new kinds of headlights available for people to blind your retinas with and the some of the camera shots the headlights were shining right into the viewer's eyes i don't need that i know what it feels like i don't need it we don't need it here we don't need it anywhere else I wish it didn't exist in the first place. So I was very agitated and upset that I had to experience that in a film that was dark. <laughs> okay. And it was so annoying. So I feel like you could have just held back on that. It's we're not dealing with the Riddler at the time, as per the trailer. We're dealing with Oz. We're, it's not like okay. we have to be made completely uneasy. We're already uneasy. We're, you know, Penguin. Well, it's Penguin. All right. Anything else? 
that is all that springs to mind right now. It's very personal mm. <laughs> button for me. So what 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 issues did you have the, with the film? Did you have any? Uh, you know, a, only a couple minor ones, I would say. I mean, I do think the film starts to feel long as, as it approaches, as it, as it surpasses the two-hour mark. It starts to feel long. I'm not... I mean, I, I, I definitely don't think this is a story that you could have split into two movies. There's not enough there to do have done that. No. And I don't necessarily know that there's any fat in it that you could really trim out. And I don't you, think there is. You know, it, 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 it it's very methodical and it's plotting out its mystery and the labyrinth that the Riddler has set out. Um, He is very similar to the the John Doe in Seven, in that he has a plan of who he's targeting and what message he's overall trying to convey. And it does lead up to a climactic action that has been planned all along. So I don't think you could sacrifice any of that, really. But it, it regardless, it does start to feel a little long. My only other quibble with the film is Bruce Wayne he went away for like 10 years in terms of in the comics and this was acknowledged also in the Dark Knight he went away for 10 years to get training and to get his body in peak physical condition and to learn all kinds of fighting styles I definitely do not think that much like the Michael Keaton Batman, which I adore, I do love. <laughs> I don't believe that this Batman went away and, and trained and learned how to fight. He is a bruiser, a little bit similar to how mm. Ben Affleck, his Batman was a bruiser. This guy's a brawler. He's very effective so far for the most part. He does trip up a couple times. He's very he, he's fairly effective as such. Um, but I, in no way do I believe this guy is like an expert combatant no i mean he maybe got training in aikido judo and maybe you know a little bit of something else you know i mean but it's not perfect it's not well executed and i'm actually fine with it i like it i think it speaks to the grittiness of it Mm. i'm okay with it Mm -hmm. so I, i think those are largely my only concerns or issues i would have so with that, I guess we don't have a whole lot of issues with the film. I think it is fair to say that we think the good outweighs the bad by far with this film. Yeah. What do you rate the film, The Batman? Um, You know, I might be a little high on Batman excitement right now. I would definitely put it at a nine because it fulfills that purpose. It, it checks all the boxes. And there's other things that happen in this film that make me really happy Mm. that it got rebooted in Mm. this way. Mm. So I am going to give it a very reserved 8 out of 10. I feel like I need to watch it a second time. I don't want to jump on the, oh my god, it's a masterpiece. Oh my god, that's perfect. I give it a 10 out of 10 bandwagon per se. It is a really good film close to a great film i'm not sure it is definitely on the level of what christopher nolan did 
with Batman. Yeah, I would love to kind of rank my Batman movies. I think this is probably really high up there. I would have to re. I want to do like a Batman marathon mm. and see where this lands, but it's probably in the top three or four. Mm. It's it's pretty high up there. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree. Uh, definitely. I, I I think you know. Granted, like you have your Batman and Robins and your Batman Forevers and your Batman v Supermans, which are the bottom of the barrel of of all of that. Mm-hmm. But I think. It's up there easily with the Dark Knight and 1989's Batman. Now, speaking about all the Batman movies, etc., there are a lot of sources to pull Batman from if you're not going the comic book route. You've got numerous TV shows to check out to mm. learn about Batman and his story. Mm. I, of course, am a big fan of Tim Verse. Uh, with the Batman animated show and the Justice League Tim Verse. Bruce I, Tim is that that's a reference to. Yes, I just, I adore Batman in its animated form because there's kind of no limitations and Mm. it's just executed very well. With all of that being said, there were a lot of little things that we could pick up on during the Batman and our friends, some of the things they didn't get and that's okay because they still enjoyed it. They still got a sense of what was happening. They didn't Mm. need to know certain things necessarily. And I just really appreciate the film for trusting us and for executing it in a way that if the fans are there, they're going to freak out. And if normal people are there, they're still going to be interested and engaged. Well, with that, why don't we segue into spoilers and final thoughts for the film? We highly recommend you check out the Batman If you are a fan of the character Batman or most of the previous movies, the likelihood of you being disappointed by this film is really low. If you prefer the popcorn fun of the 90s Batman movies, you might be a little bit let down. (laughs) This is is not a happy-go-lucky fun time by any stretch of the imagination. You'll have to wait for Marvel for that one. Yeah. And apparently you have to wait for one after Strange. So So go see the film. If you have seen the film, come join us for spoilers. If you haven't, look, check out the timestamps in the episode show notes to skip ahead to film faves. You'll enjoy that discussion. But here we go. We're going to uh, spend a few minutes on spoilers and final thoughts of the batman starting now man watching batman wipe out after doing his little flight suit was the best part of this movie Mm -hmm. (laughs) watching him just get totally slammed and a little dazed walking away was wonderful because guess what you're not going to execute everything very well well, you can't be good at everything right away. Yeah, and that was one of the few moments in the 120 plus minutes that illustrated, <laughs> oh yeah, he's still like kind of new to this. Yeah. You know, this isn't his first year, but he still like isn't an expert at yeah. this yet. So I had to start with something fun. 
I know the theater laughed pretty hard when that happened because it was so surprising and so jarring. That brings in the sound element. The sound was great. And this was the first time that I've been aware of that Batman, you can actually hear him walking towards you. The shoes are boots. Our friend that we watched it with referred to it being like a knight in shining armor. You hear them coming. Hmm. And I thought that that was interesting how they decided in this film to use sound to their advantage, sound to create fear, not lack of sound to create fear. And I thought that was pretty cool. Well, yeah. First of all, I I agree. The use of the footsteps was unique and really cool but man this film opens up with some of the best narration i have seen in quite some time and it is very much in the vein of like the frank miller comics and and it's it's very dark and and he talks about being in the shadows and how the bat symbol in the that spotlight it is not only a request for us to help, but it is also, it's like this symbol that creates fear in criminals. Yeah. And they always think he's in the shadows, even though he can't mm-hmm. be in more than one place at once. They're always suspicious of the shadows mm. and wherever they are. And I thought that was really cool because he is like the Dark Knight. There is literally a title. I don't know if it's still going, but for a long time, there was a comic book title called The Shadow of the Bat. You know, this was someone who did use darkness and shadows to great effect. And he does often in this film as well. Hmm. That so I I just want to gush on the filmmaking in this film. Yeah. And, And, you know, we went out with friends after the movie and we talked about this film, I think, for a good hour and a half. So we'll try to make it quick, but. Yeah. yeah, and there is so much to to talk about. So the footsteps is one aspect that I thought was really impressive, but also like there are shot compositions. There's there's some storyboarding of how they mapped out how a scene was going to play out and how they execute that. That is really cool. There is a scene that is lit only by gunfire. Then that is really badass. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There's uh, a scene where Batman jumps and runs down a wall, and the camera, he runs towards the camera, but then the camera flips or turns, and then he's running away from the camera. That's really cool. And it's not overused. No, 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 no. So that's great. I agree. What else did you really want to gush about? The last thing especially is the car chase that you referenced earlier. That is one of the best car chases. First of all, it's the debut of the Batmobile in this film. And boy, is it awesome. And (laughs) it is one of the best car chases I have seen in film since perhaps The Town by Ben Affleck. It is really well shot. Like... It often chooses to have, like, Matt Reeves chose to have the camera, like, on the side of the cars, often looking forward. And and sometimes, like, if, it, if we were looking at the driver, it was, like, kind of to the driver's side. It wasn't straight on the whole windshield. And it really added 
a lot to the the excitement and the kineticism of that car chase. It was so, so cool. There's a lot of great choices like that throughout the film. Everything was just really pen sharp, clear, wonderfully executed, everything uh, within each element of the filmmaking process here and the story as well. I have to talk about Gotham City Police. I just loved what they were in this film. (laughs) It was amusing. It was scary. It was a very fun, interesting, maybe it's not fun, but it's a very interesting contrast. There's so many Marvel movies and so few DC live action movies. And I'm talking about this because I'm setting it up. In Spider-Man 2 with Tobey Maguire, his mask comes off when he's saving people on a train. And the people are so kind to him and so loving. They put, they slip his mask back on so that he doesn't have to worry about everything, anything. And here in Batman, in DC World, <laughs> in Gotham, Batman gets knocked out. They take him on a stretcher to police headquarters. They have him in a jail cell. There's like 20 or 30 police mm-hmm. uh, cops around him. And there are a couple of them trying to take... Uh, his mask off and of course commissioner gordon is preventing that from happening as best Captain he can gordon, but yeah oh okay as best he can and it's just it's such a fun contrast i loved zoe kravitz as selena kyle she was just amazing her movements her hips her the way she was moving her body was very cat-like but very subtle you're only going to see it if you're looking for it otherwise you just think well she has a unique way of walking so someone new to it might see it different for someone who grew up with some sort of catwoman figure in their life I thought that she is probably one of the best Catwomen out there. And I just really appreciated how she executed her character. Mm. Everyone did so well playing the roles that they had. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, you know, you want to talk about Bane Juice, Venom. Well, okay. So you mentioned earlier how there's certain things that fans of the comics will get. Mm-hmm. And this is not a major element of the movie. This is something that happened very quickly and only lasted for like one minute in the whole film. But there is a moment when Batman has been shot at, you know, maybe two feet away with a shotgun. And he's having a really hard time recovering from that and getting back up. And in order to do so, because... He needs to get back up in the in the moment. He injects himself quickly with a grain fluid that not only like gives him the energy to get up and start fighting, but it obviously it boosts his testosterone levels to an extent that it's hard for him to stop fighting. Mm-hmm. Which makes it very clear that, because it's never ever talked about, never even spelled out, never even acknowledged, but it seems very clear that what he injected himself with was a drug that's in the comics called Venom. It's a green fluid that Batman got addicted to for a little while, and that ultimately ended up being the drug that Bane uses in order to enhance his strength and of course 
famously, he's the character that in the comics ended up breaking Batman's back. So it, it, it's not something that's a big deal in the context of the movie, but as a fan, it's a big deal for mm. for them to have just just offhandedly had that in there. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk quickly about the chemistry between Batman and Catwoman. I was very satisfied with the chemistry between them. They had like this teeny bit of a small little side 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 step romance happening mm-hmm. uh, that was very very tiny part of the movie and I'm so glad that they did it and there's a kiss it's great there's this respect of each other there's this being there for each other uh, Batman stopping her from killing Falcone her being there to pull him up after the shotgun wound Mm -hmm, and when they come together to say goodbye because they're obviously going to go their separate ways there's this beautiful motorbike sequence where they're driving next to each other for a little while and then it's time to go separate paths and I just thought that that was really wonderful and very satisfying it didn't need to be raunchy it didn't need to be more than what they gave us and I just really appreciated that all right We need to finish up, but before we do, we haven't at all talked about the subtext of the film. And Mm -hmm. you referenced how a good superhero film will be used to speak to whatever we're going through. And I think that it's important that to acknowledge like there is more going on with this film than the surface level comic book movie stuff. In that, it turns out the Riddler is, I guess, somewhat of an incel type dude where he's trying to incite a certain terrorist act against perceived corruption by the powers that be and to tear everything down. Yeah, not even necessarily course correct, but just to create absolute mayhem within the corruption that already exists. And it gets political as well because there's someone running for mayor and that political campaign uh, becomes the opportunity for him to kind of release his his fanatic ideas, really. And mm-hmm. they somewhat, in the start of the film, have, you see them in the trailer, the guys that have clown face on them. And it's Halloween night. And yeah. we see one guy who has half clown face. And he seems he's to struggling be... to be initiated, yeah, basically. He, yeah, yeah. And I love that because it shows you we're all human. We all start out just trying to make things work. But if we have enough hits to us, we're going to lose it and become something else. So I really appreciated that in this film as well. All the elements that make up Batman were hit in Mm. this film. Yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff. We could talk so much longer about this, but I think we'll go ahead and move on to my fun question. Oh, you have a fun question? I do. Who Who are your top three Batman? Oh, kind of relating to the ranking earlier. Yeah, I mean, you kind of start with Adam West. We won't include animation. So we're not including Kevin Conroy of the animated series and animated movies. I feel like you want to make me feel bad. Yes, we're going to include him. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just clarifying. Honestly, top three would be Christian Bale, Michael Keaton, possibly 
Robert Pattinson, if we're including Kevin Conroy, then Kevin Conroy would be in the top three for me still. I think I'm going to go Kevin Conroy, Michael Keaton, Robert Pattinson, which I was not expecting. You know, a lot of people are like, how are we going to raise our kid with Star Wars? But last night I found myself wondering, how are we going to raise our kid with Batman? (laughs) Like, how will we start? Do we start with Justice League? Do we start with, I mean, it's not that bad. I'm talking about the animated show. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) Okay. God, no. You know, like, how do you, I know there's a lot of fun Marvel kids shows and gently introducing characters to kids. Uh, But what's out there for DC, you know? Well, I would probably potentially start with the Adam West show if you want to go young. But otherwise, start with the animated series myself. I think animated series is where we'll go. I don't really like the portrayal of women with the Adam West Batman, so we won't do that. Dude, Julie Newmar's Catwoman is so underrated today. She is fantastic. And a lot of people love Eartha Kitt's Catwoman, too. I do like Eartha Kitt. Yeah. All right, so feel free to engage with us. Uh, Further thoughts on the Batman and what you appreciated about the film, including any themes or concepts in it. Did you agree or disagree with anything that we had to say about the film? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Now it's time to move on to Film Faves. Film Faves is the part of the show where we count down our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. And the idea is to not only give you an idea of our taste in movies, but hopefully expose you to movies you have not seen or heard of before. In this episode, we are exploring directorial debuts. So what our favorite directorial debuts are... Interestingly enough, way back around episode 92, 91, we counted down our favorite directors. So it'd be interesting to see if any of those people's first works make our list. Before I get into that, it is worth noting that as we go through the list to help you get exposed to some of these movies, we will point out if any of them are available on the following subscription services. Amazon Prime, Apple TV+, Plus, which is rare, Disney+, Plus, which is rare, and Netflix, Hulu, and HBO Max. Okay. So, Shanna, directorial debuts, how did you go about this? My, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but my thinking first was, okay, who are my favorite directors? Do I love their directorial debuts and kind of comb through that? Or did you have a different process? I definitely had recency bias here because I am more readily able to recognize directors, you know, from recent periods and their movies. And there's a lot of female directors recently. And let's be honest, I just, I prefer their stories. And I just worked backwards and went as far back as the 80s. And once I started seeing in the 80s movies that I'd see directors I knew, but saw movies that I wasn't into or hadn't seen yet, I I kind of stopped. I was like, this is just going to be a process that'll be difficult for me. I went definitely, this is definitely a feeling list. I'm going for the feel-good perspective here, (laughs) like which movies make me really happy and which movies 
make me want to see more of that person's work based on their directorial debut. Mm, mm. Something like Ryan Johnson, I like him, mm-hmm. but Brick isn't my favorite. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. You know, there's other favorite directorial te- debut movies. Yeah. So, yeah, that process I had of going through my favorite directors and looking at their debuts actually ended up bearing very little fruit. Because either I hadn't seen them, mm. like in the case of Martin Scorsese's debut, I think Boxcar Bertha, okay, or I didn't love them, yeah, like say Spielberg's Duel or mm. something. You know, a, a very good film, but not not a favorite of mine per se. You know, or even like Ridley Scott's Duelist, I still hadn't seen. You know, there's a couple like that, or there's like. Warren Beatty's directorial debut, Having Can Wait, where I'd seen that years ago, but I haven't seen it recently, and it wasn't available to stream to kind of refresh my memory. Those kinds of things were issues I ran into. I did go through all of time <laughs> and try to try to be very thorough with this, taking into mm. consideration as many directors' works as possible. So... It sounds like maybe you'll hear much more of a broader spectrum from me in terms of time, timeline, time frame. Yeah, probably. My oldest movie is from 93. So Holy crumb. And that's just kind of where it stopped for me. Wow, that's crazy to me. Yeah, so interesting. Was this a challenging list for you or an interesting one? What was great was everything is laid out in decade chunks on Wikipedia, so that was very helpful. And it made me super curious because if I saw a movie that I liked from a director and it was their first one, I wanted to know, well, what else have they made? And if it was someone super recent, I was a little anxious because I wanted to know, Am I going to see more from this director? Because one of my favorite movies, Night of the Hunter, was the only one that Charles Lawton made. And so I'll see movies that I really love and get super excited because they're directorial debuts. And I'll think, oh, my God, what else is this person going to make? But if that's all they make, I'm going to be like super sad. <laughs> mm. I also tried taking into consideration, you know, a debut by a director that went on to do great things. Was that something that I could uh, really lean on for this list? And and not so much. It ended up not my my list ended up being more like along the line your lines in the sense of would I love to watch the movie again? Do I watch the movie often or like have I seen the movie many times in my life because of my fondness for it and kind of ranking it from there. And as a result, there are two or three movies that are on my 100 favorite movies list that you can find on the blog under the film faves tab. Uh, So we'll get to that. But how about we dive right on in? With all that said, with your 12th favorite directorial debut. Starting off the list, my number 12 is The Father, directed by Florian Zeller. This is something we recently watched. A man refuses all assistance from his daughter as he ages. As he tries to make sense of his changing circumstance, he begins to doubt everything and everyone around him, including himself. It stars Anthony Hopkins, Olivia Coleman, Mark Giddis, uh, and Olivia Williams. 
We recently watched this film and we were both so pleasantly surprised by how well the story was executed and what a wonderful piece of film it was, incorporating all the elements of film and making sure everything was in sync with each other to push the story forward. So I look forward to seeing any other projects by Florian Zeller. It looks like, and maybe this can be part of our our thing here, if they have something upcoming, we can say that. Looks like he has got something coming in 2022 this year. I'm not sure when. It's called The Sun, starring Hugh Jackman, Vanessa Kirby, Anthony Hopkins, and Laura Dern. So, I mean, the cast alone just looks really great. Mm. Very good. I'm going to... I'm actually surprised that a movie so recent ended up being on your list and that that, uh, that new discovery I do admit to... Well, that, that new discovery hit you that, that hard that above all other directorial debuts, it made your list. So very cool. I'm going on the other end of the spectrum, something a little uh, far more light. Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Okay. Co-directed by Terry Gilliam, who, of course, went on to make such films as Brazil and 12 Monkeys and a bunch of others. Uh, co-directed also by Terry Jones. This is, of course, the Monty Python comedic troupe. And it, 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 it they take on King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, starring Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam shows up, Michael Palin, and more. Uh, this is a movie that I kind of grew up with after a certain age or old enough to see Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and it is just absolutely hilarious and perfect. It's from 1975. I love this movie. There's so many bits that you can quote from or cite or what have you, and you can enjoy it on Netflix. My number 11 is on HBO. Yippee. It's Super recent, 2021, Simon McCoy, Mortal Kombat. I think that there needs to be some consideration of pressure of bringing franchises to life. And if you can do it well, I think you deserve all the praise you can get. And that is why that has made my list. Mortal Kombat is a franchise with fighters from different Earths, right? Different worlds. Realms. Oh, realms. realms. Okay. Battle for the universe. That's right. Control of the universe. And uh, fighters coming together, having this championship. And I just, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was well executed. It was, it wasn't, you know, frivolous fan service. It was purposeful and well intended. And that is Mortal Kombat available on HBO. Also on HBO Max and Netflix is my next favorite directorial debut. It is Frank Darabont's directorial debut, The Shawshank Redemption, based on the novella by Stephen King, Rita Hayworth and The Shawshank Redemption. Frank Darabont wrote the adaptation as well. This stars Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, Bob Gunton, William Sadler, Clancy Brown, Gil Bellows, James Whitmore, and Jeffrey DeMunn, among others. Uh, this is one of the most popular movies in past 30 years, as it has re- uh, managed to stay up in the top 20 on IMDb, and I think was number one 
for a very long time on IMDb. And I I think that's very impressive. It is a beautiful, great story, ultimately about friendship and hope. It is about two imprisoned men who bond over a number of years, finding solace and eventual redemption through acts of common decency. And, you know, this movie came out when I was like 14-ish, and... It was nominated for seven Oscars, and it always hit me back then, and I, I just was really struck by it and loved it. I love the end. I love the scene when uh, Tim Robbins plays the opera over the loudspeakers. There's a lot of great moments in this film, and so I recommend it. If you haven't seen it, it's on HBO Max and Netflix, The Shawshank Redemption from 1994. That was my first film study in high school that made me really get into film in a more significant way. No kidding. So surely it's on your list. No, it got overdone. (laughs) Number 10 for me is something a little more lighthearted, but beautifully made nonetheless. Monsters Incorporated by Pete Docter, Mm. available on Disney Plus from 2001. In order to power the city, monsters have to scare children so that they scream. However, the children are toxic to the monsters, and after a child comes through the portal, uh, chaos ensues. It stars the wonderful voices of Billy Crystal and John Goodman, Steve Buscemi as the villain, uh, or you know, one of the bad guys, and a bunch of other great talents. I love Pete Doctor. I love what he has done uh, throughout my time in being aware of him. So that is Monsters, Inc. by Pete Doctor on Disney+. Plus. Excellent, excellent pick. My 10th favorite is also not by Pixar, but is by Walt Disney Pictures, from 1989 is Joe Johnston's directorial debut. Johnston has had an, a kind of hit or miss career since this film with The Rocketeer, but also Jurassic Park 3. And then Captain America, the first Avenger. Uh, so someone who's studied under Steven Spielberg and has, has done a fairly good job since this film, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, available on Disney+. Plus. I've always kind of loved this. It's always been kind of a standout of the live-action Disney movies uh, for me. It was a big deal back in 1989 for its effects, its visual effects, its and its use of animatronics and uh, forced perspective and all that sort of stuff. It is about a, a group of teens who accidentally get shrunk by one of their science fa- scientist father's recent inventions. And they accidentally get taken out with the trash and they have to work their way through the backyard to get home and found so they can be fixed, basically, and helped. It's a fun movie. It has highs. It has lows. It's, it's, uh, it's really great. You might actually learn to love an ant because of this movie. <laughs> Uh, Speaking specifically at me. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that's not really. But anyway, it, it's an enjoyable film. It's on Disney Plus. So if you haven't seen it, you can check it out. I do not recommend the sequels. Uh, but this film does star Rick Moranis, Matt Frewer. He's fantastic in this, as well as Marsha Strassman and Christine Sutherland. And a bunch of kid actors who never really went anywhere after this, per se. But uh, I recommend it. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. 
My number nine is Mission Impossible 3 by one of my favorite, J.J. Abrams. This is available on Prime, mm. and it is from 2006, if you needed some clarification of where we are in that massive franchise. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, what do we have coming out this year? Number seven? Well, fingers crossed, man. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Hopefully. Uh, I think it might not even be till next year, actually. I think Top oh. Gun and, and MI7 got postponed All another right. year. All right. IMF agent Ethan Hunt comes into conflict with a dangerous and sadistic arms dealer who threatens his life and his fiance in response. This is obviously starring the Tom Cruise, Michelle Monaghan, Vin Rames, and Philip Seymour Hoffman, just to name a few. It is one of my favorite Mission Impossible films. Who knows? Maybe by the maybe we can do a Mission Impossible list <laughs> mm. when that next one comes yeah, out. It's well, just seven, but yeah, yeah. it still could be fun. All right, that is Mission Impossible 3, available on Prime. That's an excellent one, and that's something that J.J. Abrams did for a little while, was revive franchises with uh, Mission Impossible and Star Trek. Both were excellent. My ninth favorite is by Touchstone Pictures, which was a subsidiary of Walt Disney Pictures. It's from 1987. It is also on Disney+. Plus. It is Christopher or Chris Columbus's. Can't say Christopher Columbus. It's Chris Columbus's directorial debut. Chris Columbus. He went on to make Home Alone and the first two Harry Potter movies, among many other things. But here's where he started: Adventures in Babysitting, 1987. I almost had this as uh, as part of my last list, Forgotten Films, because. Unless you're over 35, no one seems to really know about or talk about this movie anymore. So, And it was pretty awesome and fun. It stars Elizabeth Shue and Keith Coogan. Keith Coogan was you know, a lot of things in the 80s and early 90s for quite a while. Anthony Rapp starred in it and Penelope Ann Miller and George Newber. And even Vincent D'Onofrio, a very young Vincent D'Onofrio who people now know as Kingpin makes an appearance in this film is about a babysitter who must battle her way through the big city. I believe Chicago after being stranded there with the kids she's looking after this movie is so she much put fun. herself in that situation. Sort of. I'm just saying sort of. She went to help a friend in need. Anyway, this movie is, is a lot of fun. It's a great uh, 80s family movie. I always enjoyed it. And it's that rare, what, PG rated? No, it's PG-13 because there's an actual F-bomb dropped in it. And that is like one of the most quoted F-bombs I have ever heard growing up anyway. It's a, it's a, it's a great... And it had an excellent opening title sequence. I think that we might have mentioned it in passing when we did our opening title sequences because it has Elizabeth Shue dancing to Then He mm. Kissed Me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Adventures of Babysitting 1987, available on Disney+. Plus. If you haven't, please check it out. It is a lot of fun. All right. My next one is a lot of fun and one of the only horror movies I enjoy watching. Really? Yeah. It is by Drew Goddard, 2012's Cabin in the Woods. I was going to say Evil Dead, Sam Raimi. What the? (laughs) 
Five friends go for a break at a remote cabin where they get more than they bargained for, discovering the truth behind The Cabin in the Woods. It stars Kristen Connolly, Chris Hemsworth, Anna Hutchinson, Fran Kahn's, Jesse Williams, who we don't really see enough of, in my opinion, Richard Jenkins, Bradley Whitford, just to name a few. This is such a fun, crazy take on horror. You kind of have to be familiar with some horror before you can have an opportunity to enjoy this one because they're kind of spoofing it. Like like Sam Raimi's Evil Dead. Yeah, spoofing it kind of not in a scary movie sense. I feel like scary movie is too silly. But this is almost in a, well, we're going to make fun of horror films, but we're going to appreciate them too and honor them at the same time. Yeah, it works as a horror film in its own right, but Mm -hmm. also you feel the influences Yes. Of, of all the they're like so like there and um don't look too much into it before you watch it because it it does have a few fun surprises in it indeed cabin in the woods from 2012 that was also an interesting one because like when it was filmed chris hemsworth was not a big deal uh, at all yet and uh, i think even like it, it came out sometime right after Thor or something. So like Thor hadn't broken out or anything like that. So it's really kind of a fun one to see as an early Chris Hemsworth production, so to speak, before he became Chris frickin' Hemsworth. Uh, My eighth favorite that will make Shanna happy, it is probably the most recent on my list. It is available on Hulu. It is Band-Aid. Yes! From 2017, Zoe Lister-Jones' directorial debut. She has since directed two other films, The Craft Legacy and... Oh, what was the one from the from last year that we saw? How It Ends. How It Ends. Which you were a big fan of. I liked Craft Legacy, but I love Band-Aid of all of her works. It's one that we keep championing. Shanna, it is off limits for you because it is among your 12 favorite, I believe among your three favorite films of all time. So uh, I like to uh, do the heavy lifting for you whenever I can. <laughs> Thank you. Um, kind of help support that. It is a film about a couple who are married. They're going through a rough time. They're bickering over every little thing. They channel their bickering and their issues into music and form a rock trio with their neighbor, played by Fared Armisen. Great film. And one of those movies that not enough people know about or have embraced so we are still championing that film it is my eighth favorite directorial debut go check it out on hulu my number seven is by garinda chada from 1993 baji on the beach a group of women of indian descent take a trip together from their home in birmingham england to the beach resort of blackpool the events of the day lead them to better mutual understanding and, most importantly, solidarity. I love this film. We've got different generations being represented here. We've got different back, sort of backgrounds and sexual orientations being represented in this film. And, you know, what it's like dealing with that within the Indian culture. That is Baji on the Beach from 93. My next movie on my list is a movie I didn't even realize was a directorial debut until I was researching this list. It's someone who did a a few uh, TV movies and such, 
but didn't really do much until this film and went on to direct such films as Three Men and a Little Lady and Sister Act before passing away. His debut was 1987's Dirty Dancing, Hmm. which you can find on HBO Max. Dirty Dancing stars, of course, Patrick Swayze, Jennifer Grey, Jerry Orbach, the great Jerry Orbach, Cynthia Rhodes, and Kelly Bishop, I believe are the primary players that you'll notice or recognize. Wayne Knight makes an appearance as well as Jack Western. Set in the early 60s, about a family who goes to spend the summer at a Catskills resort, Baby Hausman, Francis Baby Hausman, falls in love with the camp's dance instructor, Johnny Castle, played by Patrick Swayze, one of the greatest soundtracks of the 80s and one of the best like love stories of the 80s. I have talked about this a couple times recently. Maybe it should be put on the bench. I don't know. But I love Dirty Dancing, and it's worth checking out because it is a lot of fun. And uh, got some great stuff in it, too. So that is on HBO Max. That's my seventh favorite directorial debut. Shanna, kick off the second half of this list for us. My number six is South African Proud. It is by Neil Blomkamp from 2009 District 9. Violence ensues after an extraterrestrial race forced to live in slum-like conditions on Earth finds a kindred spirit in a government agent exposed to their biotechnology. This is a great film because you can contrast and compare it against Apartheid, which the country is still feeling the effects of. And it's very interesting to take a film like this, show our 15-year-old son, and kind of share with him what it's speaking to in addition to what he might have understood from his little knowledge of what South Africa as a country goes through due to apartheid that is by neil blomkamp it is district nine my sixth favorite directorial debut is from one jan de bond who is a better cinematographer than a director he went on to direct such things as twister speed 2 cruise control the haunting and tomb raider 2 the cradle of life But his first film is a perfect action film. I kind of can't believe he made it happen. It is Speed, starring Keanu Reeves, Sandra Bullock, Dennis Hopper, Joe Morton, Jeff Daniels, and Alan Ruck. Uh, This is that film about a bus that cannot go below 50 miles per hour or else it blows up. It features a fantastic Dennis Hopper villain performance. One of the best action villains, I would say. And Keanu Reeves, this guy at the time, he was best known as Ted Theodore Logan. So to see him as an action star was quite the turn. And now it's hard to believe that there was a time that he wasn't an action star in the John Wick days. Uh, that we are experiencing, but here he is in his f- probably well, not his first, because he did 
He did, what was that movie with Patrick Swayze by, oh, a Point Break. He did Point Break before this. But, uh, yeah, this was a this is kind of full-on action. Love it. Speed, you can find it on HBO Max. My number five is from 2017. Oh, it's another horror film. Oh, look at this. A list that has two horror films. Wow. That's what is happening here? Crazy. <laughs> this is by Jordan Peele. Get out. A young African-American visits his white girlfriend's parents for the weekend, where his simmering uneasiness about their reception of him eventually reaches a boiling point. Don't look this up if you haven't seen it before. This is very spoiler heavy. It is such a tense film. It is so well executed. Wonderful acting from Daniel Kaluuya, who you'll also see in Black Panther. You also see him in one of the early episodes of Black Mirror. Huh. Alison Williams, Bradley Whitford, Catherine Keener, and the creepy Caleb Landry Jones. You'll also see Lakeith Stanfield and a bunch of other, oh, Lil Rel Howery, just to name a few. You'll see a bunch of other wonderful faces in there. Totally worth watching. That's Get Out from 2017. Hmm. My next film, my fifth favorite directorial debut is by one Jeremiah H. Chechik. Shanna, do you know no. Jeremiah no, absolute, H. Chechik? No, Can you name not. any Chechik films? Nope. <laughs> what have we got here? This is a, a director who went on to do such films as in the 90s, Benny and June, Tall Tale, Diabolique. He did the really bad Avengers movie, The Avengers, based on the British show. And he's since mostly done TV shows over the past 20 years. But his first film is one of my favorite comedies of all time. It is National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which we have talked about on more than one occasion. It is one of my all-time Christmas favorite Christmas movies. It stars, of course, Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, Juliette Lewis, Johnny Galecki, and E.G. Marshall, Doris Roberts, Randy Quaid, and John Randolph. Uh, this is about a family, the Griswolds, dealing with extended family coming to stay for Christmas. <laughs> and disaster ensues one right after another. Hilarious movie. Love it to pieces. More Christmases than not, I am totally down to check this movie out again, which means I've probably seen this at least 20 times. Yeah. So uh, I love it. If you haven't seen it. Oh, it's also written by John Hughes. A lot of people forget that. It was a John Hughes uh, script. But uh, yeah, if you can hunt it down, I recommend it. National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, 1989, my fifth favorite directorial debut. Shanna, what is your fourth? favorite directorial debut oh this one is super special the first five ten minutes of this film you realize that you've been transported into something amazing and it just makes me want this to have the the criterion treatment so bad but it turns out you got me something as close to what i'm going to get with that for christmas it's by a24 joe talbot's 
Lost Black Man in San Francisco from 2019, a young man searches for home in the changing city that seems to have left him behind. This is such a beautiful film. It stars Jimmy Fails, Jonathan Majors, Rob Morgan, Tachina Arnold, Mike Epps, Finn Whitrock, uh, who is also from Ratchet, Nurse Ratchet show. He's in there. Oh. Danny Glover. Oh, what a treasure. As well as a bunch of other wonderful people. This is such an interesting film. It's shot so beautifully. I highly recommend it. It is not available to stream anywhere, but it's A24. It's my number four. Uh, go ahead and rent it. That's The Last Batman in San Francisco. Excellent. My fourth favorite directorial debut is by Ron Underwood, who has spent a lot of time in more recent history doing a lot of TV. And before this film, he did quite a few shorts. But after this film, he went on to direct City Slickers, Heart and Souls, one of your favorite forgotten movies, Speechless, Mighty Joe Young, and I think... The Adventures of Pluto Nash is when his career oh, took dear. a turn, unfortunately. And and so he's been doing a lot of TV work since. Ron Underwood, his first film was Tremors in 1990, which I think is a brilliantly directed little horror comedy about a small, isolated Texas town defending themselves against the strange underground creatures that are killing them one by one. This is my horror debut. (laughs) How is it that I have two horrors and you have just one so far, I guess? It stars Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, Finn Carter, Michael Gross, Reba Frick. McIntyre. Oh my god, that's worth watching again just so I can see her. And Ariana Richards, which some people would would recognize as the girl in Jurassic Park three years later. Uh. Oh, also the great Victor Wong uh, co-stars in this film. I just adore this movie. Not only is it really funny and really charming, but it has some like tremendous chills in it. There's some very effective sequences on such a low budget what they're able to do there is a scene where a car gets pulled into the ground that is fairly terrifying and there's a lot of like pov shots where we're seeing like quote unquote the perspective of the monsters you know running across the ground and you see like maybe there's a board paneling for a porch and it's rolling with the creatures uh, running under the ground. Mm. It's so cool. I love Tremors. I think it's fantastic. I don't love the sequels. Most of them were direct-to-video, I believe, if not all of them. But I do love this film. It is a blast. And I recommend, if you can, get the Arrow Video uh, special edition Blu-ray of that this. That is beautiful. Because it is everything. You, it has like nine hours of features. It's unbelievable. Anyway, Tremors, 1990. Shanna, what is your third favorite directorial debut? My third is Shiva Baby from, I think this is a confusing year. Is it 2020 or is it 2021? 
So it was actually 2021. Okay. Okay. It probably wasn't a festival in 2020, um, but its release officially was in 2021. Alrighty then. This is a fantastic film. And guess what, guys? This is available on HBO. How exciting. I might actually go watch it now. And it's directed by Emma Seligman. And this is happening at a Jewish funeral service with her parents. A college student runs into her sugar daddy. It is starring Rachel Sinat, Danny Defari, Fred Melamed. Fred Melamed. What else is he from? Oh, man, so many things. He was in A Serious Man. Mm. And he was in, in, what is it, In a World? Oh, gotcha. Yeah. And Polly Draper, just to name a few. There's a lot of faces in this film. I love this film because it touches on just a few things that young women are facing. And maybe older women are facing this too at times. But trying to figure out who you are and how you're going to make that leap from college to, I don't know what you call it, real life. Like... (laughs) Well, figuring out where you, where you want to what you want to do. Where are you gonna go stuff. after you've that spent constant, so much time studying? Yeah, and that film is constant pressure. Like, what are you gonna do now? What are you yes. gonna do? What are you studying? Whatever. I was like, well, I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what I'm gonna do. In fact, is she actually graduated or finished college, or is she just I think graduated she's high changing school? Changing majors or something. Okay, because. We have the parallel with her best friend. Yeah, it's happening in college. Okay. And college age phase Mm -hmm. whatever yeah yeah. and i just i really love it i need to watch it again because we only watched it once when it came out but i you know i know i want to buy it that's how much i love it uh that is shiva baby available on hbo go check it out it's just an hour 20 so you know it's not taken away from a lot of time and I did double check. It w- it did hit the festival circuit in late 2020, but its release was April 21. Okay. My third favorite directorial debut is by one Mel Brooks, who, <laughs> of course, became one of the great comedic directors of all time. Just looking at his 70s and 80s work alone... It is 1967's The Producers. Zero Mostel, Gene Wilder, Dick Sean, Kenneth Mars, and more star in this farce about two guys who come up with the brilliant plan of how to create a stage play bomb and still... Run away with buckets of cash. I love this movie. I think I have come down on it being my favorite Mel Brooks film. It is absolute genius and hilarious. And yes, I am a guy who loves Spaceballs and Young Frankenstein as well. Uh, but this one is the king. This is a great debut. And... Uh, I highly recommend hunting it down if you can. I'm not a fan of the stage adaptation that came out in the 2000s with Matthew Broderick and Uma Thurman. Mm-hmm. This is the way to go. 1967's The I, I love that film, too. If I'd kept going, I would have probably had that on my list. <laughs> yeah, right? How can you not? 
All right. What is your second favorite directorial right. debut? This is often my first favorite, but I decided to shake things up a little bit. It's from 2019. Olivia Wilde's Booksmart. Wow. On the eve of their high school graduation, two academic superstars and best friends realize they should have worked less and played more. Determined to make this happen, they go on a hunt for all the parties that are happening. This stars Caitlin Dever, Beanie Feldstein, as well as many others, but I'm going to speak more about Caitlin Dever and Beanie Feldstein. Caitlin was in the Netflix show Unbelievable... And she's in Dope Sick as well. Beanie Feldstein is in Impeached and Lady Bird as well. Mm. Uh, I think that the talents in this film are so great. They've all done something else that's really worth watching. So it has this really lovely tapestry. And what a great film about the experience of high school. High school can usually be traumatic when I think about it, but looking at this one, it makes me remember that there was good stuff that happened there too. So <laughs> I cannot recommend this more. Book Smart available on Hulu. And she has a film, I think, coming out. Her, her sophomore effort is coming out uh, this fall, if I'm not mistaken. So looking forward to Olivia Wilde's second feature there. I know she has a short right now that's available to watch, mm. and I will go check that out. So my direct next directorial debut is, and my second favorite, is by the man who would later bring us Serpico, Murder on the Orient Express, Dog Day Afternoon, and Network... One right after another, his debut was 12 Angry Men, and I am talking about Sidney Lumet's uh, from 1957. This excellent, perfect film about a group of jurors trying to decide the fate of one young man. Henry Fonda, Lee J. Cobb, Martin Balsam, John Fiedler, a lot of people know him as Piglet and other voices in Disney. E.G. Marshall, Jack Klugman, Edward Benz, and Jack Warden, oh, as well as Ed Bagley, all star in this film. It is one of the greatest single location movies. It is fascinating and tense at times and features some of the greatest dramatic performances of its decade. I love 12 Angry Men. It is an excellent film and a must-see film. Even today, it is still remarkably relevant. Mm. It is available on Amazon Prime. Shanna? All right. Do you want to take a guess? Well, I've seen it, so I can't. You've had it right in front of me, so I've seen it all this time. So what is your absolute favorite (laughs) directorial (laughs) debut of all time? I don't know why you're getting this, like, preamble then. (laughs) All right. My favorite of all time right now this year is (laughs) Promising Young Woman from 2020 by Emerald Fennell. It's available on HBO, so go freaking check it out. A young woman traumatized by a tragic event in her past seeks out vengeance against those who crossed her path. This film is so... 
Oh, perfectly executed and beautiful in all its elements. Kerry Mulligan, who stars in Promising Young Woman, just becomes this gorgeous canvas. It's like a costuming party to... She's this Venus flytrap and she's like attracting flies into her trap. And I just, I feel like she just embodies this character so well. It also stars Bo Burnham and Alison Brie, uh, as well as a couple of other wonderful faces, mm-hmm. uh, even Jennifer Coolidge and, oh, what is her name from Friday Night Lights? Connie Britton. You know, I can gush about this film over and over again. I believe we reviewed it at some point. Yep. So people can go check that out. But if you ever wondered what it was like to be a woman, you can go and check out this film. And it does a pretty good job of explaining what women have had to deal with for centuries. And, you know, modernizes it, obviously. And I just... She's definitely my anti-hero, I guess, is a good way to put it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. So that's Promising Young Woman available on HBO. Go check it out now because I'm going to go check it out now. Okay. So have you seen my... Have you seen what my favorite is? I have not. Okay. Feel free to take a jab if you so desire. I don't think I'm going to get it. Is it something recent? Uh, No, it is not. Okay, I'm definitely not going to get it. (laughs) And like the past couple other movies, it it did make my 100 favorite movies of all time. It is by a director whose films since I'm not a huge fan of, particularly The Hunger Games. Mm. He did Ocean's 8, which was surprisingly decent. But Gary Ross is the director I am talking about here. And his directorial debut was a 1998 film called Pleasantville. Starring Tobey Maguire, Jeff Daniels, Joan Allen, William H. Macy, Jane Krasmerich, Reese Witherspoon, of course, Jenny Lewis... And oh, there's a great character actor who plays in it. I'm forgetting his name and I'm not seeing it right away. But a, a solid cast. What was you going to say? I'm very happy that this made your list. Why is that? You love this film. Uh, <laughs> it's another opportunity to talk about it. Well, you know, I'm not sure it's a movie that comes up very often anymore. I, I'm not sure that enough people have seen it these days. Is about two 90s siblings who get sucked into a 50s sitcom. Thanks to Don Knotts. Don Knotts makes a lovely uh, appearance in this film. Himself, a star of 50s sitcom, The Andy Griffiths Show. And basically, it's, it's about like, you know, should things stay the same or is change necessary and a beautiful thing? And it has such wonderful, beautiful moments in it. Marley Shelton is also in it. She just occurred to me. Has um, an exceptional score. I'll see if I can look up who the composer is right now because I do love that score and find it quite moving. It has an excellent blend of color and black and white throughout it. The score is by Randy Newman, and it is gorgeous and stirring. 
The whole film is that. Tobey Maguire is excellent in it. Jeff Daniels is superb in it. One of his best performances. It is a film that is possibly underrated. It was only nominated for three Oscars. I bet one of them was technical. And I just absolutely adore this movie. And it's surprising how well it still holds up. Back then, it was absolutely stunning and dazzling in terms of the visual effects. How did they get like that to be color, but all those petals, all those petals to be color and everything else in the back, you know, all these little things that they had to paint and everything in the film. Anyway, love it so much. If you can hunt it down, I recommend it. Pleasantville from 1998 as my favorite directorial debut. Shanna, was there anything that you had to leave off your list that you took into consideration you want to give a shout out to? I just wish that I could have done Night of the Hunter. It's just such a great film, but Mm. we spoke about how it was a one-off, so maybe one day we'll do a one-off list if there's enough out there. That would be interesting. I had like 40-something directorial debuts. Of course you did. I was taking into consideration here. The ones that came closest to making the list were Donnie Darko Mm. by Richard Kelly, not a career that really took off afterwards yeah. very well. District 9, you mentioned. That almost made my list. Mm-hmm. Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? Oh, yeah. By Mike. Oh, my God. The guy who did The Graduate. I just blanked on his name. Um, Love Actually by Richard Curtis. Cabin in the Woods, you mentioned, almost made my list. And then it kind of goes on from there to various degrees. Mike Nichols, duh, of course. Michael Nichols directed Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I still got to get that Digibook Blu-ray of that one. <laughs> That's an excellent one. I so, feel like your side eyeing is a hint to me for a gift. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Just random ones. Being John Malkovich, Citizen Kane, The Maltese Falcon, I considered Get Out. Cameron Crowe's Say Anything. This is Spile Tap by Rob mm. Reiner, I considered. Charlie Chaplin's first feature debut, The Kid. Black Stallion, Mad Max, Caddyshack, Airplane. For Your Eyes Only, I didn't realize, was a directorial debut. Roger and Me, uh, of course, uh, John, Michael Moore's directorial debut. Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, I talked about in the last episode. I didn't realize that was a directorial debut. I was surprised that that did not make your list. It, it was close, man. It was close. The Iron Giant, Bad Boys. I'm surprised Bad Boys didn't make your it's, list. It's, you know, no. All right. It's not not my favorite compared to others. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That's really good. In Bruges. Mm -hmm. Dawn of the Dead was Zack Snyder's directorial debut. I took that in consideration. There's a whole slew. Maybe you'll see it on the poll on Instagram. We'll find out. But what are your favorite directorial debuts? Feel free to email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. That'll about do it for this episode of The Movie Lovers. Shanna, before we talk about the next episode, why don't you share with everyone where they can find you online? You can find me on Instagram at Shanna Paxton Photography or on FlickChart at Spellbinding A. Go to thegibsonreview.com to find past articles and past episodes of the movie lovers as well as uh, such things as the disney through the years series of articles where i reviewed and ranked uh, every disney animated movie decade by decade 
and go to follow on facebook.com slash the Gibson Review or on Instagram, the Gibson 99. Uh, you can find bracket polls there on the Gibson 99 Instagram. I don't have it in front of me right now, but they have actually done some recent polls and uh, results there. I think about the time of recording, you will find around there like a favorite 2004 movies. We'll probably do favorite directorial debuts uh, soon there. It looks like most recently y'all picked your favorite Disney animated movie. And that ended up being The Lion King. So go there to participate and have some fun Next time on The Movie Lovers, it's a little up in the air because we were supposed to review Guy Ritchie's Operation Fortune, but that, for some reason, got removed from the release schedule or at least postponed to sometime I'm not familiar with for whatever reason. So it kind of left March a bit of a dead month until the end of the month. So I don't know it's to be determined we were going to also count down our favorite action movies of all time as part of that episode i'd like to be able to see if there's an action movie that can maybe uh, substitute that uh, guy Ritchie film but i'm not really sure i mean the the slate coming out is you know cheaper by the dozen it's a lot of streaming movies cheaper die the dozen deep water windfall and, and really not much. So check out the Instagram page for updates on what the next episode will be decided to be. Hopefully it's another review. But this is a very rough start to the year so far. In the meantime, keep loving the movies. This is Jeff and Shanna saying... Bye-bye.